welcome to Masters of Circulation. And it was very clear to me getting into the whole stroke neurointervention work that we needed to go slow here and figure out how to do this. First, with what we knew something about was this quite large vessel that required bifurcation, which is easy to access. So we went to the UA University of Alabama at Birmingham IRB. We got the first approved protocol to do carotid was angioplasty at first. We did five cases because there was no stent you could put in a carotid that, that you would think about putting in a carotid vessel. Um, and the fifth case didn't go well. It was it was a collapse and clot, and the patient did very poorly. We stopped, and uh, we we sat down, thought about it, and I said, you know, guys, if we're going to do carotid intervention, we have to use stents. I'm Ramon Varco, and this podcast is called Masters of Circulation, where together with my co-hosts, Peter Schneider and Andrew Holden, we focus on teasing out the pearls of wisdom from inspirational leaders in the field of vascular intervention. Our mission is to explore the history of what got us to where we are today, the current challenges we're all facing, and those all-important perspectives on where we're headed next. Dr. Gary Rubin is an internationally renowned interventional cardiologist recognised for his pioneering work in carotid stenting and embolic protection devices. He's also acknowledged for the development of coronary stenting and the first FDA-approved coronary stent. During his tenure as Chief of Interventional Cardiology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and later as Department Chairman and Chief of Service of the Lenox Hill Hospital Cardiac and Vascular Program in New York, he helped bring both programs to international standing in peripheral neurovascular and cardiac intervention. Dr. Rubin's vast clinical experience has enabled him to recognize technical innovations that improve patient outcomes. He's been central to the success of several biotech startup businesses and is the named inventor on 10 issued US and EU patents, as well as 41 additional patent applications worldwide. Dr. Rubin attended medical school at the University of Queensland, where he completed his degree in 1975. After completing cardiology training, he enrolled as a PhD candidate at Sydney University and was awarded this degree in 1983. He then joined Andreas Grunzig at Emory University to continue his postdoctoral research. In October of 1987, he developed and placed the world's first balloon expandable coronary stent. In 1989, he moved to the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where he was Professor of Medicine and Radiology and Director of the Cardiac Cath Labs and the Interventional Cardiology Section at the University of Alabama Hospital. He's co-authored more than 280 papers and 225 abstracts in peer-reviewed journals. He's also edited three textbooks on interventional cardiovascular medicine, coronary and carotid artery stenting, and contributed to 20 textbooks on interventional cardiology and vascular medicine. His book titled The First Balloon Expandable Coronary Stent, An Expedition That Changed Cardiovascular Medicine, was published in 2015. He lectures extensively in the United States and abroad, and has received numerous national and international awards for his notable contributions to cardiac and vascular care. Gary, welcome to Masters of Circulation. Thank you, Ramon. So, uh, Gary, congratulations on all your uh, your amazing successes. But, you know, a lot of our uh, the people that have 
uh, encouraged us to do this podcast are really interested in the backstory. And part of the backstory is how did you get interested in cardiology in the first place? Well, it's an interesting path, a little different from the usual. It's not well known that uh, my first degree was uh, in veterinary medicine surgery at the University of Queensland. So I, uh, I moved into medicine at a fairly mature age, having practiced for a year or so veterinary medicine, and then made it into the medical school at the University of Queensland. And initially, because of my veterinary background, I was interested in infectious diseases, zoonotic diseases, public health. But what became really apparent to me at that point was that the epidemic that was striking the world in the 1970s was was one of really uh, cardiovascular illness and cardiovascular disease. So that was... uh, my greatest interest through medical school, I went to Sydney at the Holstrom Institute or Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and then the Holstrom Institute of Cardiology. And uh, really cardiology fascinated me because uh, that was most of what we were seeing in the entire spectrum of cardiac illnesses. So uh, of all the internal medicine diseases we saw. So cardiology was the focus. And um, actually, as I think about it now, the backstory is uh, also also needs to be um, laid out because in 1975, 76, uh, if we think about it, and many of the listeners won't really understand this, that, uh, for example, there was no treatment for peripheral vascular disease. Uh, I remember dozens and dozens of World War II vets sitting on the sides of their bed because the, they needed to hang their legs over the bed to get rid of their, their intractable resting pain. And they did that till they ended up with gangrenous legs and then the surgeons amputated. And on the cardiac side, Heart attacks, myocardial infarctions would come in. There was nothing we could do. We watched them. Some died, some we saved, and then they'd be back a few months later. That was cardiology at the time. We had heart caths. Everyone that uh, the surgeons would accept went to bypass surgery. That was a pretty, let me say, uh, tragic uh, procedure back those days. It was a high mortality, morbidity rate. It was six weeks in hospital. So that's where I was uh, in cardiovascular diseases. There's no treatment for stroke. That's a whole other story. And, and, you know, it's fascinating to me. Like, how did you get interested in becoming a, a cardiac interventionalist before interventions were invented? I mean, how, how, did you, how did you go down that road of saying, I want to fix things, but yet the tools just weren't there? Well, I, that's, a, that's a great question. Thank you. I started actually on a surgical track in CV surgery. And it didn't take me long to realize that uh, at a fairly mature age for a medical resident, I was not going to get along with the uh, cardiac surgeons. Uh, so uh, I followed the, the cardiology track. And let me say, compared to today, uh, compared to 20 years ago even, because I'm going back 40 years now, 
it was very unsatisfying. So think about it. We would do hard tasks all day. We were doing break hill uh, cut downs, which I was quite good at because I had some surgical background. And we did some femoral, so Soans and Judkins technique. And we would do five or six of these a day. There's just so much coronary disease. And uh, then uh, we would just be sitting around waiting for the surgeons to do their thing. We were really handmaidens to the surgeons. There was really very little therapeutic work that belonged to cardiology at the time. We didn't even have many drugs. We had beta blockers and I was doing some of the original work on IV nitroglycerin, lidocaine. We had defibrillators, uh, but they were only really fairly uh, newer to us. So there wasn't a lot going on, which brings me to the next part of the story, which I think is interesting and where I think all of our work begins, yours, uh, every interventional uh, vascular person, surgeons, uh, even to this day, neurosurgeons, uh, now interventional neurologists, interventional radiologists. Uh, we were sitting in uh, the lunchroom and a rep turned up with a video of this guy in Zurich who would put balloons in this blockage and inflate the balloon, the blockage was gone. A, a really quite a stunning thing. You put it in the context of where we were at that time. And um, that's really uh, how I moved on, and I can tell you how that happened. And also how our entire profession moved on, because for all of us, um, Intervention, as we know it today, really began with this guy from this German guy in Zurich, Andreas Grunzig, and I was very fortunate uh, to hook up with him uh, in the States uh, a year or two later, and uh, that's how my career took off. Yeah, Andrew here, Gary, and uh, that is a really fascinating part of the story. So we're in the mid-'80s, and, you know, We've all heard of Andreas, and uh, but of course you had you had the opportunity and the privilege to work with him. So maybe you could just start there. How did you how did you come to meet him, and what was it like working with him in those early days? Andrew, it's a very uh, important element of what set me off on what was to be thirty years of uh, a lot of uh, clinical work, innovation and really uh, scientific evaluation. But let me begin by saying that uh, someone you remember, Lou Bernstein, who was one of the, the greats at Royal yeah. Prince Alfred at the time, he had actually been uh, to Zurich, and he came back, and I had been applying for fellowships in the US. I had a National Heart Foundation scholarship to go over for a couple of years. I had been offered a job with Bill Grossman at Harvard. And Lou Bernstein came back, and about the time I had seen this video, and he said, you know, no one really knows yet whether this is going to work out. And uh, But you know what? I think you should reach out to this guy. I know you got the job at Harvard. It seems like a big deal. but And uh, he's at Emory now. He's moved to Emory. 
and uh, you should reach out. And by the way, I happen to know he's coming to give a lecture for the Cardiac Society meeting in Melbourne. So as one does, I, I wrote to him at Emory and uh, asked him if I could meet him. And he was very gracious. And he said, yet, um, when you're in Melbourne, uh, I'll be staying at this hotel. Call me. So I had this fresh-faced young um, interventional, uh, sorry, what am I saying? This uh, fresh-faced young uh, cardiology fellow doing a PhD is downstairs. I call his room on the hotel uh, service. He said, oh, I'd forgotten. Yeah, okay. Yeah, what's your name? I'll be right (laughs) down. And he came down for a cup of coffee. He was very gracious. I explained what I was doing. He told me what he was doing. He said he he needed someone who knew how to write papers and had done a PhD and understood, you know, how to do scientific investigations. He'd moved to Emory, had all this, this information and all this data on patients, but he really hadn't published enough. So then uh, a couple of months passed by and I was sort of uh, shrugging my shoulders thinking an opportunity gone by. And all of a sudden the telegram, which I still have, uh, from Andreas Grunzig saying, uh, how quickly can you get to Emory? Wow. So that was uh, I've kept that telegram all these years. And this, so the telegram part is meaningful because that, that's, that's what it was like in those days is, as uh, all you guys know. So I turned up at Emory in the beginning of 1984, and uh, he took me under his wing. We not only were doing a huge amount of balloon angioplasty from patients coming from all over the world, certainly all over the country. He was the go-to guy. And he was traveling everywhere, lecturing all around the world, we would do six, seven, eight angioplasties a day. He left it to the fellows to screen the patients. And if we if we selected the wrong patient for him to do, then, um, then uh, we'd be in trouble. But we learned very quickly. And let me just uh, say that he was an incredible guy to work with. Uh, at a very personal level, I got to know him well. We were both foreigners in the, in the South. Um, and both of us had a lot of very uh, similar personal issues in our lives at that time. He was a few years older than me, but we connected. He actually had me come and stay with uh, with him in his carriage house in Buckhead in Atlanta, and we would uh, spend actually a lot of time together talking about what 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 his life had been like and what his life was like this time he was he was just divorced he had another uh, young girlfriend that he was to marry and uh and margaret ann so we got very connected on the clinical side he was quite a remarkable character first when you uh when you were doing rounds with him with patients you could see the incredible compassion and regard for really patient care. And that was one thing. I mean, he was a very famous guy at this point. He was uh, getting all these awards. He was in line to get a Nobel Prize. Um, He was 
incredibly focused on patient care. He was an incredible technician and operator in the cath lab. Just was amazing what he could do with the wire and the catheter and the balloons that we were using at the time. And, and was actually used to compare what he was doing in the cath lab with flying an aeroplane, which is really quite ironic because a year and a half later, he was to die tragically in that plane accident we all know about. But his technical skills, his patient skills, his innovative skills, and I'll talk about that because it's fascinating, and his really courage to take on the establishment uh, and his sort of German uh, discipline regard for scientific validation of everything he was doing was really remarkable, and that really shaped my career, uh, being with him and uh, being a part of that, that time, as short as it was, because it was only 18 months before the evening when I was waiting at the hospital for him to return, he didn't turn up, it was very unlike him, didn't hear. We had six patients for the, it was Sunday night, he'd been down at his home at Sea Island on the Georgia coast. He flew a Beechcraft Baron. He wanted to take me down, not that weekend, but many other weekends. In fact, he had uh, just a measure of this man's humanity. He had this beautiful home down in Sea Island. He would have all the fellows and the nurses and the cath lab staff and the research staff. We all get together at least uh, once a year down at Sea Island. At any rate, um, I was waiting that night when he didn't arrive and the next morning where the hospital was all abuzz because we'd heard a plane had gone down which matched the plane that he and his uh, then wife, Margaret Ann, were flying. So we lost him. Um, and um, I'll back up a little bit to try and demonstrate how his innovative mind also uh, influenced me moving forward. For example, he would sit with us and he would, with the whiteboard, he'd say, these are the problems right now. Number one, abrupt closure, because I really care about these patients and we're never going to move this technique forward if 10% of these lesions we're ballooning open will close and cause emergency surgery or myocardial infarction or even death. And that, a lot of that was happening by the mid-'80s, as uh, Andrew, you particularly will be aware. Um, and then the second thing was uh, resinosis. He said, this is a problem. Um, I've got all these ideas about how to solve it, and we would go through these ideas. And then it's how to advance single-vessel angioplasty into multi-vessel disease. Major issue, and we had just applied to the NHLBI for the EAST study. And I had written that protocol myself and Skip Anderson wrote that protocol for Andreas. He was busy and we did the work. And then the fourth thing was chronic total occlusions. If you think about all those things today, um, some of them we're still challenged by, uh, but uh, his mind was always moving. He also said, he would sit with us fellows, you know, everyone says that we're crazy to be trying to do this, 
particularly in multivessel disease, the surgeons were still convinced that this percutaneous technique would never work in multivessel disease. And I was sent off by Andreas to meeting speaking on his behalf because we wanted to get support for this multivessel disease trial, the EAST trial, randomized comparing balloon angioplasty to surgery. But he also said, you know, one day we will be replacing heart valves percutaneously. Mm. 1984. Think about that. Mm. Um, so this is really quite a remarkable character, and he certainly, certainly um, sent me down the road because my next move was really doing lots of trials. I, the EAST trial we completed at Emory. I went on to University of Alabama. We also started to develop the stent, Gene Turco, Cesar Gene Turco, and some of the guys from Cook Incorporated visited Emory. Uh, Cesar came once before Andreas's death. After Andreas's death, I was left there, and he, Cesar tried all sorts of things. He'd already put his Z stent in the vena cava, the vena cava stenosis, and uh, Cesar had all these ideas and working with Cesar Turco in the animal lab at Emory, we then developed the first rather crude but very effective, actually at the time, quell stent, which was the really the basis for all the stent technology that came after that. So uh, one other element there, which was important to what happened to my career, as all of you know, is that Andreas Grunzig really, before he did coronary angioplasty, was a peripheral angiologist, interventionalist. And so he was downstairs and he would bring us down doing renals and iliac and femoral work. Uh, and it became sort of, uh, for us, uh, well, those of us who were interested in, and I guess I was, interested in expanding what we were doing and thinking more about what we were doing, moving into peripheral vascular work seemed to be um, the, the sort of correct thing to do, particularly following Andreas's uh, beginnings with that work. So that's how I ended up um, doing a lot of peripheral vascular work, which was then why I um, decided to head north into the carotid arteries, which is a whole another story, of course. Gary, before we move into carotid territory, um, can we just backtrack a little? I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the early development of the first coronary stent. You mentioned it was with Gian Turco. Can you tell us how that was developed in the first place, how it was tested, and how it went on then to be used in that first patient and what the circumstances were? Sure. It's an interesting story, and, and just to set the stage again, Remember that uh, back in those days, we could not do a balloon angioplasty, which was reasonably successful. It was certainly if you pick the right lesions, but we couldn't do one without the surgeons uh, uh, standing by for us uh, or really the surgeon's permission. So we were somewhat hostage to the cardiac surgeons and, and we were very limited by what we could do. It was a terrible problem. There was about 10% abrupt closure rate. And by this time in the mid-80s, there were actually tens and tens of thousands of patients getting balloon angioplasty from the East Coast to the West Coast. 
And the morbidity and mortality from abrupt closure was uh, really remarkable. So this had to be solved. And that was what was on my mind when a CCG in Turco turned up with these ideas. He showed me the Z-stent, which he'd put in a little plastic catheter. You guys are innovators, so you know how this, this goes. And, um, and had a pusher wire. Well, uh, we, no one knew, and this is an important part of the story, no one knew what would happen to metal put in this constantly beating, twisting coronary artery. Uh, in fact, uh, there were people who just decried this whole approach, that these, uh, these metal devices would migrate through the coronary arteries into the chest wall, they would perforate, they would, they would clot, they, uh, they would rupture the vessels. And that was, uh, so it was very difficult to try and figure out what we were going to do. The first Z-set with a little plastic tube and a pusher, we pushed it out of the guiding catheter in the, in the dogs, and particularly dogs at that point. And it was so unreliable, as we know about self-expanding stents in moving coronary arteries, the self-expanding stents have never panned out. And, and actually, most of the dogs, uh, the, the stents ended up anywhere, and we it was not going to work. Um, and I went back to Caesar Gian Turco and said, we need a much better way to get these in. It turned out that um, actually about five years earlier, and I, he had some radiographs from MD Anderson Hospital where he had wrapped some wire around a balloon and actually deployed these coils with a balloon expandable technique in dogs and then he had just dropped it. He just couldn't figure out what to do with it. So um, there's another little side to this that working in the animal lab at Emory, because I had a veterinary background, I really knew how to keep these animals alive whether it was the dogs or the pigs, and we even did work on atherosclerotic rabbits. So the path forward was very complicated. The path forward involved many, many iterations of metals from gold to platinum to copper to you name it, many iterations of how to do the wraps that would allow the balloon to reliably expand. But eventually, after about 18 months of a lot of sweaty work in the smelly animal lab, we were able to get 100% placement where we wanted it every time. And then we started looking at long-term histology, and we published a lot on all of this. And in fact, um, when I had all this body of, of research in multiple animals, atherosclerotic animals, I went to Cook and I said, um, this is going to work and we have patients that are dying or going to emergency surgery every day. We've got to move ahead with this. And they said, you sure you're not really just the investigator who's so absorbed in his work that you're overlooking something? And he said, why don't you send all of this histology and um, uh, microbiology work um, off to uh, Bill Roberts at NIH, which I did. And Bill Roberts got back to me and said, no, everything you've published, I confirm is correct. These things are becoming endothelialized. They're not perforating. They're not rupturing. They're not clotting. 
And um, so uh, I said to Cook, we need to move ahead. And they said, um, and this was just after there was some major lawsuits about the Edwards surgical SAVA valve uh, falling apart. Some of you will remember that. And Cook said, well, there's too much liability here. However, if you would like to do an investigator-sponsored IDE, we will we'll make your product. And that was all the support I got. So I wrote the IDE, submitted it to the FDA, and they provided me with stents, and then um, we were ready to go. Uh, John Douglas and I were doing a case for the right coronary artery. I actually have the, 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 the medical records and, and John's notes uh, from this procedure. I actually have the angiograms, and the vessel went down and was occluded, and the ST segments went up, and the chest pain came on. And John looked at me, he said, you're ready. I said, ready as will ever be. So they brought one of the uh, stents up that had been processed by Cook for human use. We put it in, worked perfectly. There was such uncertainty uh, that the IRB insisted everyone who got a stent still had to go to surgery. At least they'd be going to surgery with myocardial protected with blood flow and... um, and the surgeon could take his time to do put in good grafts and do a good job rather than take the patient down to surgery, you know, in full sort of uh, shock and cardiac arrest, as was really often the case. And um, I can't really overstate what, what, what a powerful thing this was. I mean, I can remember as a young attending having to go down to the lunchroom and beg a surgeon to to, to to go to the OR where we'd moved the patient because I had balloon angioplasty to the patient who had, had abrupt closure. So this was a big deal. After five or six patients and restarting them with an angiogram, it became very clear these, these stents were good. They were open. People expected they would close after bypass surgery, but they did not. So that's when we went back to the IRB and the FDA and said we're not going to send them to surgery. And uh, then I reported in 1987 uh, the first uh, series of cases. But I was out alone by myself at that point. Um, I didn't have much support from the company and much support from any of my fellow attendings at Emory and not much support from anyone else in the community because very few people knew what I was doing. And in fact, I was lecturing on multivessel disease in Thailand, having been back to Australia and visit my parents. I got a phone call from the chief of, new chief of medicine who replaced Willis, Willis Hurst to say, uh, Gary, there's been accusations that all this stent work is really uh, not accurate, that you are under-reporting the complications. And I'm going to have to suspend you. Wow. Now, think about that, Andrew. Um, Roman, Peter, this was the end of my career. Yeah. And, and I've often thought about this. If you get too far out ahead of a cavalry charge, you're just likely to be taking the, the, the shots. And I did. There was an investigation. They looked at every EKG, every patient. The committee at Emory said, um, Ruben's reporting is 100% accurate. And um, 
everything that he presented at the HA meeting is 100% accurate. My privileges were reinstated, but my entire um, situation in Emory is soured. So it's just, if you think about that in a career, you think about some of the uh, rocky trails you travel with innovation, and that was not the last one because, uh, as, as we can probably talk about, I, I ran into all sorts of headwinds and some sharp knives when I started putting stents in the carotids as well. It turned out that the letter that was written to the chairman of the department was written by a disgruntled fellow who wanted a job at Emory, and I didn't give him one, and he was very friendly with the cardiovascular anesthesiologist who saw their entire um, work threatened by this stent thing because that we could put many more patients in the cath lab that weren't going to go to surgery, and we could do it very reliably if we had a stent. So that's how all of that uh, transpired. And, of course, um, it didn't take too many years. But it took a few months before uh, 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 Big Shats and Julio Palmas came out with actually a much better stent. But, uh, but then the entire field moved forward to the billion-dollar industry it is today with many, many millions of patients receiving uh, these stents. Uh, but thinking back to how it began, um, it was pretty tough going. And I do have a letter from Julio Palmas to the record, um, who wrote to me, and I have the letter still, Gary, if you hadn't have done your original animal work and the original studies, uh, we would never have uh, got FDA approval for our Palmas Shats uh, J&J stents. So, Bit of an interesting backstory there. It's a very um, true thing that the first one through the gates gets the arrows. You must have a pretty tough skin, Gary. Well, back in my veterinary days, I was known as a pretty good um, horse vet. And uh, uh, in fact, I put myself through medical school taking care of uh, castrating unbroken colts out on uh, these Western Queensland properties. So, um, uh, in fact, I had I did fifteen a day, which made me good money to keep myself going through med school. I, and they're all done standing. The horses would try to kick you, kick of course, kick you. And I had a technique where I could do it and tranquilize them a bit, numb them up, and uh, and lead them off. So, yeah, I I toughened up uh, growing up in the Australian uh, bush. So. So for those of you listeners who don't know that much about Australia, they do breed them pretty tough up in Queensland. So it sounds like um, this is, is it fair to say that you knew as soon as you started deploying these things that they were going to work, they were going to be the game changer? It was very clear. And as soon uh, as uh, we opened this up, the next thing that happened, of course, in the FDA pathway was the, the company was very happy with the results. They came in, they took over the IDE, and they uh, opened up a multi-center multi study. So we had about 20, 30 of the top operators in the country using these gene turco rubin stents to great effect, and everyone wanted them. And the next part, interesting part of the story is that we've completed the trial. We showed that they were safe and they were very effective for patients with threatened closure or acute closure. Uh, 
And uh, we submitted all this data. It sat with the FDA for two and a half years. And I'd moved on to the University of Alabama. Now, in the meantime, really, patients are dying. They're literally dying. Or they're getting massive myocardial infarctions. I was actually, I'm a horse guy, and I play polo. I'm still playing polo. And I was riding the polo horses down, polo ponies down in outside Birmingham. I get a call from the chief to say, uh, could I come in? They're airbacking the uh, senior senator from Alabama down who's had an angioplasty at Walter Reed Army Hospital and they can't keep this thing open. He's having a heart attack. They're going to send to surgery. And um, Hal Heflin gets airbag down. I go in to see him and um, and shake his hand. He looks up at me. He said, I've heard about you. I heard you were playing polo. He said, and he's, of course, the senior Democratic uh, Democrat uh, senator from Alabama, right? An old um, blue dog Democrat. He looks up at me. He says, you ain't one of those Rolex wearing uh, uh, Newport Yacht and Polar Plant Republicans, are you? <laughs> I said, no, sir, I'm a, I'm an Australian. And uh, no political allegiance. I don't even get the vote yet. So we put, we sent it him the next day. Uh, he went home a few days later. He got back into the, the Senate uh, a week later, and he gave a speech, which I have on my wall behind me. It's in the congressional record. Talked about what had happened and what I did. The next week, Cook got the letter to say the uh, the first uh, FDA-approved Semper's Reef sale. And the, the important point about technology is we think about developing technology that really works is that we had hundreds and hundreds of physicians paying their own way to come to the uh, meetings that Cook would hold and I would they'd fly me around the country teaching these guys, guys like Richard Myler and Simon Sturter, Bill O'Neill, I mean, going back, uh, the, the, the original um, sort of big angioplasty guys, um, uh, Mike Cowley, um, and they'd all be sitting in the front row. When you develop a device and the device has that type of interest and adoption, you know it's working and you know people want it. And I've always kept that in mind all the years of device development from that point, that uh, if you want a device to be successful, and if it's going to be successful, you find out pretty quickly whether the very busy operators really find it valuable. That's an important element to my, my uh, story. So nowadays, these coronary devices, they're pretty sophisticated and matured. Do you have any concept or thoughts as to where they're going next? Yes, I do. I think the Maseratis that that uh, that we use today, compared to sort of the the Mac trucks that we were using back when we began, it took a great deal of skill to get these in place. Now it's uh, and it's, anyone can do it. So that's all been perfected, and then the drug evolution came along. And by the way, back at uh, University of Alabama in '89. I submitted an abstract. We were putting drugs on these stents back then because it was so obvious to prevent restenosis, which was one of my projects, that we get drug on in the lesion. Now, I used the wrong drugs. I used methotrexate and I get vincristine uh, and didn't use the right drugs and we didn't have enough metal probably. 
but the idea was there back then, um, some work that Brad Cavender and myself did back at UAB. The drug evolution was huge, and that solved reasoners. Not completely solved all the problems. And I'm still a great believer, although we got it wrong in the first FDA-approved devices, that bioabsorbable coronary stents, I know Andrew uh, Holden did a lot of the early work with this as well, but these bioabsorbable stents will be designed to, to provide drug elution and much better long-term outcomes with the absorption that will take place. Um, uh, that will be perfected in the future, I'm confident about that, and patients will be better off for it. Now, uh, Gary, you already alluded to your journey into carotid stenting and how you came to do the, the peripheral work at, at Emory and how you were oriented that way. But then the carotid is a different beast. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, you know, kind of staked out territories. And, and you mentioned about having to, uh, you know, not take these things personally. But tell us, how did you get interested in the carotid space? And wasn't the coronary space also burgeoning at that time? What, how did you divide your, how did you get interested now? And how did it divert your attention away from coronaries? That's a very interesting question. Let me tell you why and how that happened. Um, well, I was doing a lot of peripheral work. In fact, I was one of the, along with uh, uh, Richard Stack and Chris White and a few others, we were trying to teach the cardiologists that if you're going to go through the iliacs and up around the arch and you're going to have to deal with this disease as well. So we were doing a lot of peripheral work. We became comfortable with looking at, for example, you know, subclavian lesions. Uh, and there were, there were, you remember Palmas dance, you would, you would crimp them on a balloon and uh, you would go up and, and, and solve those problems when we saw those. But the carotid bifurcation disease was uh, fascinating to me. And uh, also at that time, which is part of the important part of the story, is we had just started using stents, and I published the first paper for a coronary stent being used in a STEMI. Uh, and um, we were making dramatic uh, progress with acute myocardial infarction. In the meantime, nothing had happened with stroke intervention, nothing. So now we're into the 19, late 19, uh, early 1990s. And um, I had a neurologist who called me up, and you'll all know this guy. His name was Jay Yadav. He was a board-certified neurologist. And Jay called me up and said, I want to come. I want you to teach me how to do uh, stenting and balloons in the brain because it's time we did something about strokes. We, we, we look at them and we don't do anything, and you guys have made so much progress in the coronary vessels. So Jay turns up uh, and says, I want to do this. I said, Jay, you know, um, I can teach you all this, but I can only teach you if you uh, sort of do a, a sort of a tangential cardiology fellowship with the other fellows at UAB. He's a board-certified neurologist. And he said, sure, I'll do that. So Jay jumps in, learns a bit about cardiology, is learning how to do 
coronary interventions and peripheral interventions. And we teamed up with a wonderful neuroradiologist who'd done a lot of brachiocephalic work, but nothing at the bifurcation, uh, Jerry Vitek. Some of you will remember uh, George Vitek. God bless his soul, passed on a couple of years ago. Um, remarkable man as well. Uh, great technician, a great teacher, as Andreas Grunzig was. So we formed this team. We got support from the neurosurgeons, the might say the vascular surgeons wanted nothing to do with us. And, um, and I thought about this acute stroke thing. And I remembered what Andreas Grunzig told me more than once, that the only reason that coronary angioplasty and then coronary intervention took off was because he focused on what's the easiest beginning to the path don't, don't start out with people having heart attacks. Don't start out with complex disease. You pick the easiest stuff. You prove you can do it there first. And it was very clear to me getting into the whole stroke neurointervention work that we needed to go slow here and figure out how to do this first with what we knew something about was this quite large vessel at the cryo bifurcation which is easy to access. So we went to the UA University of Alabama at Birmingham IRB. We got the first approved protocol to do carotid. It was angioplasty at first. We did five cases because there was no stent you could put in a carotid that, that you would think about putting in a carotid vessel. Um, and the fifth case didn't go well. It was it was uh, collapse and clot and the patient did very poorly, and we stopped. And uh, we, we sat down, thought about it, and I said, you know, guys, if we're going to do carotid intervention, we have to use stents. But we didn't have a stent. We did have the Palmaz stent. We could, um, we could crimp onto the balloons. There was no, no such thing as embolic protection, if you think about it. So we went up then with Palmaz stents. We did about 30 cases. And they went well, all of them. Um, we had a couple of minor events, TIAs, but no major strokes or deaths. And then we brought all the patients back under the protocol for uh, angiographic analysis. And what we noted was a good number of the Palmaz stents had crushed because of the very superficial nature of the carotid vessel. So again, in innovation, you go back to the drawing board. I said, we need a self-expanding stent. Self-expanding stents were not doing well in the coronaries, but they were being used in the periphery. Well, actually, they weren't being used in the periphery. Uh, they weren't the self-expanding stents for the periphery. What there was was a tracheobronchial wall stent, which happened to be on a 300-centimeter shaft, and we could no way to get it in. So, and believe it or not, I was doing these cases live, live demonstrations. We had Cook make us a, a 400 centimeter wire that some poor fellow would head towards the cath lab door and hold it. And two guys would move the, set, the wall stand on. And, um, and there's a, um, well, who was uh, someone who was a prominent interventional cardiologist who did a lot of peripheral work at the time. Um, and I'll, I'll mention his name. I've told the story before. It was Jerry Doris. He sat in the auditorium with 400 docs watching 
And he said, I have never seen anything so medico-legally negligent as what you're doing. I said, Jerry, just watch. Because we, the, one, the other lesson I would, I would, I, that I learned is you don't do anything live, and, and this is a big mistake as I watch live cases today. You don't do anything, and Andrew knows this and Peter knows this. Uh, you do too, Ramon. That you don't do anything live teaching someone. If you haven't done it so many times, you know exactly what you're doing. And when guys do these crazy things they've not done before in live demonstrations and they're, they're uh, not doing uh, actually credit to the profession or even their, or mostly their patients because there's a lot more pressure when you do something like. At any rate, we put the wall stents in and, and uh, uh, wasn't many months later that a peripheral wall stent was approved for use in the periphery. We'll all remember those SFAs we did um, with wall stents. Didn't work so well, but they worked beautifully in the carotid. And then uh, we published that, we taught that, then um, the carotid stenting uh, self-expanded stent business was another. This next big business that we, um, the, the, and, and frankly, uh, procedure for good patient care that we began, but of course the vascular surgeons were hostile and uh, all of that work, I would say, was, was held up for purely self-interest, political reasons by uh, really um, astounding uh, lobbying by the vascular surgeons to prevent us from getting any reimbursement for carotid sending. Even after we got FDA approval with the early AccuLink, Precise, and, and even the exact scent went on and on. Except in the last six months, as some of you will know, Peter will certainly know, you've been part of our group, a lot of surgeons, a lot of neuroradiologists, neurosurgeons, interventional neurologists, we banded together, we approached the uh, CMS, Medicare, and now I'm very confident that it's already gone through the comment period. We're going to get um, approval for a payment for carotid stenting. The importance of that is not only did a lot of patients who could have benefited from this technology didn't get the technology, but it put the brakes on innovation and technical development in the carotid stent field because if there was not a big enough market, the companies didn't want to put any money into this um, into this uh, space. Yeah, and you've been involved in so many uh, uh, technical advances in this area. And uh, it's interesting that wall stents are still implanted today and are actually still quite popular in some uh, geographic parts of the world. Uh, but I know you were involved in some of the specific devices like the exact stent and the NAV6 uh, protection device. What, what, what was that, was that an early foray for you into uh, helping start small uh, startup companies or, or how did that work? Good question, Peter. The, and interestingly, the uh, exact stent, uh, was my idea. I patented an idea for a very closed cell scent. It was very clear to me that a closed cell scent, if we could wall off this material, we could provide a lot of embolic protection. And that fact, it was an Australian company that uh, Endosystems that I was involved with, a couple of Aussies, and we developed the exact scent. We then teamed up with 
a friend of mine who was doing uh, development in Ireland, he came to me with a piece of foam and said, Could we? because that's what he had. They were going to use this foam for all sorts of other potential medical applications. He said, could you use this in the carotid to be a filter? And I said, no, for all these reasons. But but perhaps if we create a sort of a windsock. Uh, so we were thinking about embodied protection with filters. Even when Jay was there, Jay went off and developed one with um, with uh, uh, Cordis. And let me uh, credit someone uh, that you may know, Sriam Ayer, was one of our uh, faculty. He was very very involved in the whole development of garage scenting. It was really Sri Ayer who said, you know, um, we need these filters. We need them not just for the carotid. We need them for coronary bypass grafts that are very thrombotic. We need them in the peripheral vessels where we're shedding all this clot, particularly in occluded um, uh, venous uh, bypass grafts that we're occluding. And so I want to give Sri credit for that. But we went on with this Irish company, which was called Mednova. Then I talked uh, uh, the Endosystems guys to sell that stent to Mednova. We went through FDA process and we sold that to Abbott Vascular. And in fact, um, this is 15 years ago now, so I have no financial role in this. But it is now the best-selling, uh, the exact stent, closed cell stent, and the best-selling stent in the U.S. now, and with the NAV6 filter, which is the original uh, Metanova filter from Abbott Vascular. And getting back to the wall stent, what the wall stent and the exact stent had in common was that they were closed cell. And if you oversize them, and a lot of carotid interventionists still don't get it, you don't want to size a carotid stent of the vessel. A five-millimeter vessel gets a 10-millimeter stent. You get much more coverage. And in fact, over the last 10 years of my carotid stenting work, I put two exact stents coaxially. I've talked about this at many, many uh, lectures and teaching sessions to get that really tight, tight uh, closed cell, almost a complete sleeve. Which leads me to uh, the Seaguard stent, if you'd like to hear about that, because uh, when I, that is the ultimate closed cell stent. It's a nitinol stent on the outside as a polymer micro mesh and a couple of years, and I was aware of it, but I hadn't really looked into it and I was busy with lots of other family issues. I looked at the data on this stent, thousands of patients in Europe and dozen publications. They were getting extraordinary results. And I said to myself, I've always wanted to have this stent. And I and, and in fact, the exact stent, if you go back to the original patent, was designed to have a very, very small, almost complete um, sleeve at the 10 millimeter point where you put it across the lesion. And then the, the cephalad and more proximal parts were open cell, so it would be more flexible. But no company took that and did, and Abbott Vascular certainly didn't do what I wanted. But anyway, uh, Technology evolves, and now we have the SeaGuard micro mesh stent, and it's quite a remarkable device. And where I joined the company, so I could help them get it through the FDA process, and we nearly finished that study. And I'm confident that uh, we're going to have excellent results, like they've had in many of the studies they've done in Europe. This stent, where it's 
becoming the best-selling stent in Europe. So. Well, Gary, you've you've touched on you know a, a, a breadth of uh, innovations you've been involved in, and you know innovation really is a mark of your entire career. But maybe you could tell us about some of the other startups you've worked with, perhaps um, in other spaces outside of uh, the coronary and uh, carotid interventions. And you know what are the most intriguing? What's been the most rewarding of those of those experiences? Yes, um, Andrew, that's a, a, another great question. Thank you. I think the basis of innovation is really unmet need. And if you're a busy clinician, then you recognize these unmet needs. And I would say from the at a very basic level, there's two problems with uh, device innovation uh, that I've experienced. One is we have uh, engineers and and physicians who have the fabulous technology, and then they try to fit the technology to a problem. And my approach has always been that if there's a big problem, then you try and find the technology to solve that problem, and you're meeting an unmet need. The, The most, not the most recent, I'll tell you about that, which is interesting, but the, about 10 years ago, when TABA was really taking off, the biggest problem was that the uh, suture pre-closed techniques just were not working well. In fact, I had vascular surgeons who were sort of part of my group. Uh, Dick Green, who was a chairman of SVS, was a great peripheral interventionist, Dick, and he did pretty good carotid work too. And he was actually had moved to Columbia and he said, you know, it's just terrible, all the vascular uh, complications of the femoral that we're seeing from these massive 14, 16, 18, 21 French sheaths. And um, about the same time, an engineer had come to me because he knew that the Angiosil device was coming off patent, and he wanted me to work with him, and I did, to produce a better Angiosil. And we did, and we actually went to... to European trials, the six French Angiosil, which worked really well. But after about uh, 12 months in that, I turned to uh, this wonderful uh, 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 product uh, engineer, uh, businessman now, Greg uh, Walters, and I said, Greg, what we really need to do is take it, what we know about these this device and turn it into a device that will really effectively and reliably close these massive holes in the femoral artery. And that evolved uh, after a lot of hard work, a number of years, about six, eight years of work into the Manta device, which we got FDA approval for, CE mark for, and we ended up selling that to Teleflex. And, of course, uh, I will say that when you take something out of a small company and move it to a big company, um, it's the development and the clinical application slows down. But the Manda device, I think, is a major contribution. And those operators who use it and know how to use it and know how to use it correctly, which is always a problem with device development. On one hand, you've got a good device. On the other hand, they have to be used correctly. And there's always this operator-device interaction. And I'm sure you're all very aware of this. 
But the manta is selling well around the world, and now I see papers coming out with better techniques for seeing how you're deploying it, and many centers use the manta uh, exclusively now uh, for TAVAs, and they use it for closing um, large holes left after we've used uh, hemodynamic support devices like the impeller. Um, which, by the way, back at UAB, we did some of the very first um, uh, angioplasties and coronary interventions with patients on full, full fem fem bypass. And if you can think back to the uh, mid late 1990s, which uh, has now become a real thing, but back then uh, we realized how important it would be. So uh, that was one uh, that was very important. Um, most recently, I've turned my attention back to valve work and where uh, we founded a company looking at uh, the issues associated with lifetime management of these tavern devices. It's very interesting uh, work. If you realize how many young people now are getting percutaneous tavern, and then these valves are not lasting some some uh, we're seeing significant dysfunction as early as four or five years. Uh, most we think are going to go to 10 or 12 years, but at some point there's going to be hundreds of thousands of patients who will need another valve. And it's very simple, as you, some of you may know, and you certainly, Andrew, to put a tabber inside the tabber. It's actually quite easy. Or a SAVA, or a surgically placed valve except for one problem, the leaflets get in the way. And uh, recently, Greg Walters and I, uh, David Wood from Vancouver, great guy, one of my fellows, learned uh, everything about uh, intervention and even innovation. Uh, Janar Sinathan, who trained in, I think Sinar trained in Auckland. He's now with David in Vancouver. And we uh, have uh, developed very good uh, lesion ex uh, uh, leaflet excision technique, which is really fascinating. We can go in, we've done cadaver work and uh, some animal work. We've got a ways to go, of course, as you always do with device development. But we can cut out uh, the upper third of all these valves, which solves a lot of the problems associated with keep putting valves in and, and additional tissue uh, sandwiched between all these valves that are in there. So we cut the leaflets out. So that's fascinating work. Um, I'm traveling to Philadelphia next week to work with the engineers on that project. Uh, and um, we're very uh, hopeful this will turn into uh, very uh, interesting technology. And by the way, it occurred to me and, and the others in my small group that when you start cutting aortic valves out, you need a temporary valve before you get the next one in, patients start to crash. So we have developed uh, something called a hemoshield, which is a temporary valve, which we have tested in animals. It's a place it uh, with a catheter. We, right now it's about 12, 14 French. Uh, we think we'll get it down. It sits just below the, the valve in the, in the left ventricular outflow or actually right in the annulus. It, is, it functions beautifully to protect the patients um, while you get the second leaflet out or while you get the tabber 
second tab of the Ryzen. So, um, so getting back to Andreas Grunzig, I still feel I'm answering his call about uh, whatever problems we face, if we really do the work and think about it, we can solve a lot of these problems. The, uh, the path really requires a lot of intellectual honesty about what you can really achieve. And it requires incredible collaboration with industry. And in my case, startup uh, businesses require good business people, know how to raise money, very good engineers who know how to sit with you in front of a whiteboard and say, and they do, you have, this is a problem, but what about this? And you go, that will never work. Well, what about this? Well, that could work. Let's try it. And you move to the benchtop models and uh, creating those re realistic benchtop models is a whole engineering project in itself. But then you prove these things in principle in these benchtop models and you move to the cadaver and the animal studies and eventually first in man. So that's the pathway that uh, now I've done really multiple times with, uh, with all these uh, different devices and different cardiovascular applications. And I might also add there's been a dozen more that dabbled and looked at and thought not really an unmet need or um, this is not going to work or the market's not big enough for us to get the funding that we need to do the really careful and really tedious work that it takes uh, for device development, uh, particularly implantable device development in, in humans. Uh, particularly if you keep in mind, as I learned from Andreas Grunzig, it's really the patients first, and you've got to be thinking about are the patients going to be safe are they really going to benefit? And uh, can you get to where you need to be without compromising any patient care? So, so I mean, that's an absolutely inspirational. And before I, um, I hand you, I know Ramon's got some more questions on a different tack, but um, just back to Andreas, you've referred back to him a few times. Is it true that you did an angiogram on Andreas? Um, and what was the background of that? That sounds fascinating to be doing an angiogram on your boss. Maybe you could tell us about that. We did. Uh, and a full uh, declaration, actually, the guy who actually pushed the catheter into, into this, the master's coronary arteries was a wonderful and dear friend of mine. He actually used to stay with me here in Jackson, put a house here in Jackson Hole, Whit Whitworth. Whitworth uh, Whit can claim to actually uh, put the... Uh, the Catherine, I was scrubbed. It happened because Brunswick was in his, I guess, early 40s, early mid 40s, and um, had been doing these angiograms on thousands and thousands of patients. And was, frankly, there was, you know, nuclear stress tests were still nuclear blur tests. And he, we believed, and he believed, you really need an angiography to know what's going on. And he didn't really have any symptoms, but he was curious. So he said, boys, you're going to do an angiogram. And we, uh, we, what did we, have? we had six French diagnostic catheters. So uh, we did a percutaneous six French. Um, and we weren't using sheaths then, actually. 
people don't, none, none of the current docs would realize how much work we did in the early days. We didn't, didn't use sheets. Um, we just did it all with the wire coming out of the skin and put the catheter back into the vessel. Uh, Andreas jumps up on the table and, you know, he gets his favorite nurses to get him prepped, of course, because he was, uh, um, if you've seen photos, he was Clark Gable. He was a charming, charming man, um, and uh, the girls loved him. He loved the girls. And so they prepped him, and Whit and myself and a tech called Joe Brown were in the room, have the photo. We looked at his coronaries. They looked fine. And uh, we pulled the six French catheter out of the skin. We stood there holding his groin for about 20 minutes. He said, is it bleeding? We said, no, you're good. And he said, right. So, you know, getting up, he gets in his scrubs, puts his underwear on, gets in his scrubs, and puts his hand in his pocket on his groin and walks back to his office. But two hours later, he changes into his suit. He's sure he's not going to bleed. Beautiful suit. He goes to the Emory Christmas party. Um, so so that's then And we were not doing outpatient paths in those days. This guy, uh, he was uh, he was an interesting character, courageous, very cautious. Um, but uh, yes, that's a that's a true story. What a great story, Gary! You've referred to Jackson's Hole a little bit, and I know you've been there for a while. But tell us about what inspired you to move there, and and what you do for fun when you're at home in Jackson. When I was at the University of Alabama, I've always loved horses. Horses were my first love and passion. All through my early career, I had no chance to own a horse or be with a horse. But by the time I was on the faculty at the University of Alabama, I got into polo. I could never afford to even have any interest in that back in the day. I was more of a cowhand, um, cattleman. Um, in fact, uh, I was back at the vet uh, school reunion in Brisbane just a few months ago, and some guy turned up with me uh, uh, riding a bull out of a, a, a rodeo shoot um, back in 1966. So anyway, cattle and horses were my thing. I was playing polo in Alabama in the middle of – actually, we are in Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, stinking hot, and the guy said, you know, I know they play – Polo in the summers up in Jackson. It's beautiful. This was now early 90s. And uh, we, I came up and we looked at some property. Thank God we did it 25 years ago. I wouldn't be able to do it uh, even today. So um, I bought 20 acres and I've been playing polo out here in the summers ever since and um, still playing. Every year I say I can't do this another year, but I feel I can. So at 75, I'll still be playing six chucker polo this year, which is uh, I'm pretty proud of. Horses got me to Jackson Hole. Um, I've also, since I've been living here, become a much more proficient skier. And uh, of course, I love that. And um, that's Jackson Hole. Horses and cattle in the summers and uh, winter sports in the winter. Sounds a bit like Western Queensland, certainly the... There's a lot of lot of uh, Oz, Australia in in uh, Wyoming. No, no question. Do you miss Australia? Miss it very much. And uh, and now all the kids are sort of 
he graduated or late stage college, not how much. Uh, my wife and I really think it's time to get a place back there, uh, probably Sydney, for, a, for for at least a few months every year um, so we can be with our families uh, and our friends. And um, as uh, Peter Allen sang, um, I still call Australia home. We both do. Well, we'd love to welcome you back. Hopefully that's not too far off. Yeah, and, and, and you, you already touched on what we were also curious about is the importance of family to you and, and also your wife and what, what are her interests. Uh, another really quite interesting story, which I'll just keep it to the, the correct details, but uh, my wife, Peter, was working for uh, what a company called uh, USCI that was, had just bought an Australian company back in the 80s. And then she was traveling around the world teaching in China, angioplasty, and they moved her to Boston. And I had known her peripherally in the industry, and then we got connected when she moved here. So um, we had uh, we got married, and we have four incredible children, thanks to, of course, uh, my wife, because I was actually very busy, although I never, never had a, a hospital that was far from where I could get home and put the kids to bed or pick them up from school or, you know, even if I had to go back to work, which I frequently did. So I would say that uh, beyond beyond everything I've accomplished in my medical career, uh, which I would say has been an entire blessing, and any, any young person who asks me about going into medicine, I tell them there is no more wonderful career that you could enter into. But beyond that career, uh, the most important thing to me is my family and uh, my children. And uh, now I'm uh, fading into the sunset. All of you will know and uh, feel that uh, it's your family and, and frankly, your friends, which are the most important things in your life. And I made many, many wonderful friends around the world during my career, and they hold them near and dear to me uh, even to this point and try to say in contact. Well, Gary, this has been a fantastic interview. And before we wrap things up, I'm just going to throw a couple of questions that we we pose to most of our guests. Um, the first one's about your professional career and what you're most proud of. The The thing that I guess I'm most proud of is the fact that I loved caring for patients, and that has uh, always stood by me um, as a, a procedural physician. I guess I loved as much chatting to the patients and the families before, and as um, was, thank God, uh, mostly the case afterwards. And think about it, guys. One of the things we can do in interventional vascular and cardiac work, we can actually take pictures of our work and share those with the patients. No other profession can you really do that. They do a bit with the endoscopic work these days. Not the same. You all know how dramatic it is when there's a coronary 90% stenosis or a total occlusion in the LAD and you go back and show the patients the wide-open vessel. Same in the carotid, in the femoral arteries, iliacs. So most proud about that. From the 
device development work, I'm really most proud about the coronary stent work because it really did change the way we practice coronary intervention. Without the stent, we would never have got to where we've got today. And um, it's a tribute to Andreas Grunzig that he set me the task to solve that problem, and I believe I did. And I wrote a book about it. You can look, look it up on Amazon.com. It's not available in hard copy anymore. Uh, the first balloon expandable coronary stand. A lot of the stories I've been telling and during this interview are detailed in more words in that in that book. I think after that, uh, perhaps um, carotid stenting, particularly if we get CMS approval in three or four months from now, that will be, I think, the final uh, hurrah, or maybe not, of my career. Maybe we'll develop just a fabulous way to, to take care of aortic valves so that we can keep doing two aortic valves, what we've been doing with coronary stents, really accents for years. That is, when one wears out, you put another one in. And uh, that would be, I think, a major contribution as well. You've certainly had quite an extraordinary career, Gary. Just um, one last question. What piece of advice would you give to the next generation of vascular specialists? The uh, most important advice is to put the patient and the benefits they will get from your work always first and to try and put your uh, ego and any other uh, priorities that you might have in your clinical practice aside to always focus on really what is the best thing for the patient. And one really other point, which again, to quote Andreas Grunzig, which has been a bit of a theme of mine, but he used to say this to us. He said, it's one thing to be a hero uh, when you go out and tell the patient you solve the problem. Carotid, peripheral, save an ischemic leg. Um, treat these days uh, strokes. I, I've been doing stroke work see patients wake up on the table. It's one thing to be a hero when things go well. When you really need to be the hero is when things don't go well. And we all know as interventionalists, vascular and cardiac, that when things don't go well, a lot of physicians, they are not capable of doing what is required to spend time with the patients, grieve with them, work with them, explain everything to them and spend time with them. And my one bit of advice would be focus on the patient and when things don't go right, that's when you need to reschedule your cases and spend time with that family and that patient. Incredible pearls of wisdom, Gary. Well, that's it for this edition of Masters of Circulation. Special thanks to today's guest, Gary Rubin, and to my co-hosts, Peter Schneider, and Andrew Holden. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 